Thank you, Hal. As we prepare for our uh, second service this morning, the National Capital Bible Church, welcome. We are, um, in this service, probably going to spend uh, a little bit of time on why the Protestant Reformation. And it's a, it really is a watershed event that most of us probably, uh, that, that eludes most of us, but it's important for us to understand it. Uh, this is our opportunity during the second service, though, for spiritual preparation and confession of sins. For grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is also our opportunity for... Uh, for presenting an offering, giving an offering. And as I always like to say, this is our opportunity to reciprocate in love. God has blessed us, provided for us, and this is our opportunity to express our love through giving. And we know that uh, the Apostle Paul has told us that each one should give just as you determine, just as you uh, understand, perceive it in your own heart not under compulsion nor reluctantly for the Lord loves a a cheerful as it's often translated but it's willing gracious giver let's take a few seconds closing our eyes and bowing our heads for spiritual preparation and then I'll open us in prayer Dearly Father we're thankful for how you have blessed us. We're thankful that we have the opportunity to express our love for you through giving. We're also thankful for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son, whom you sent, Father, to pay the atoning price for our sins, and not just our sins, but the sins of the entire world. We're thankful, Father, for that extraordinary uh, demonstration of love. We pray, Father, that while we are not able to understand that, that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we can exhibit that kind of love to others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Ephesians, a passage that I simply quoted. But as we begin... Our second service, I want to focus on the dramatic change that occurred uh, approximately 500 years ago. And we could actually probably go back uh, seven, six hundred, five hundred years. Uh, but the, the Protestant Reformation itself is uh, identified with a particular date. And uh, I thought today we would, uh, while looking at some scripture, we would also discuss some of the, uh, some of what was happening, the situation in, uh, in Europe at the time, and of course spilling out into other areas of the world, but certainly in Europe. And 
the uh, it's remarkable to see some of the similarities that we have yet today. Uh, the slide that I have here, the Protestant Reformation, October the 31st, 1517. Uh, you know, for, for many of us, we might try to uh, find in the recesses of our minds uh, when is the first time we even learned of the Protestant Reformation. I can tell you that for myself, uh, I heard nary a thing about it until I was in school one day. I was in high school one day. And one of the teachers came in and asked us if we knew what religious significance uh, the day, that day, held. Of course, we all knew Halloween, but that didn't seem to have much religious significance. Uh, we sat there sort of dumbfounded, and finally she said, well, do we have no Protestants in the room? As it turns out, she was uh, a Catholic. She was a Roman Catholic. Um, and therefore, have we no Protestants in the room? Do you not know what special day this is? And frankly, the answer was no. She said, well, this is the day of the Protestant Reformation, the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Nothing. Didn't include, no clue. And uh, I remember nothing of what she said about it, but it was, but for some reason, that stuck in my mind. And later on, as I'm sort of working my way through seminary and then the uh, church history, this happened to be, of course, a, a big part of church history, as it should, because it is a tremendous watershed for us as Protestants and for the Roman Catholic Church, because uh, since the very first century after the uh, canon of scripture was written there had been one church and one church it was now there were periodically some different sects or some splinter groups here or there but essentially the what was known as the catholic church and the word catholic was used as universal as it is today Roman universal church meaning that the Pope who is the vicar of Christ on earth or so designated by the Roman Catholic Church has one universal church one universal belief throughout the earth and uh, even though there were dissensions within the church at various times there was never a thought of ever changing or dissolving the church or having a different church. Now we do have the different sides of the church and when I discussed that we did have the Roman Orthodox Church as well, uh, the Eastern Church and then there were others that began to, to split away. But the, the uh, demonstrative difference doesn't really occur until uh, during the time of Martin Luther 
And Martin Luther is not the only reformer. There are many, not just men, but women as well. Uh, and it starts, I mean, we can pick out others like John Wycliffe or John, uh, uh, John Huss, uh, Jan Huss. Uh, but Martin Luther is the sort of the central polarizing figure that we have. And in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4, I'm going to begin in 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. And Martin Luther, as he was studying the word of God, as many had before him, would, and he was, by the way, a professor and he taught, uh, first of all, the book of Psalms. And he loved the book of Psalms. And that was um, the book that he taught almost exclusively before he went to uh, Wittenberg. We pronounce it Wittenberg in the uh, United States, but uh, German Wittenberg. Uh, he was teaching almost exclusively Psalms. But when he arrives at the monastery in Wittenberg, he now begins to teach other books, and he teaches Romans, and he teaches Galatians, later on teaching Ephesians, later on other books. And from these books, he is trying to reconcile what the church is teaching and what he is teaching from the Bible. Well, one of the big problems, and I'm going to illustrate this to you by a, a book that has recently uh, hit the streets, is that the Bible wasn't taught. Scripture simply wasn't considered that significant to the church. Well, what was considered significant? Church tradition. Church tradition was not only on a par with Scripture, but because it was associated with certain individuals, it became more important. And then the other part of this, church tradition, which I've sort of already mentioned, was what was written about the Bible. Studying uh, Augustine, even Aristotle, Aristotle, Augustine, uh, Peter Lombard, uh, and his uh, writings of the sentences was considered to be a much higher work to be studied than, uh, than the Bible. But there was something not s significantly different about Luther, but the time in which he lived, Luther struggled significantly, greatly with his sinfulness. Matter of fact, an overemphasis on his sinfulness. And after he became a monk, his trans, uh, trans uh, his transformation from being a lawyer to going into monasticism, is a story in itself. You might say it was a lightning strike. But after he uh, he is he arrives in the uh, monastery in Erfurt, he is now 
almost overwhelmed with his failures and his sins. And he would go to confession. And this is sort of an interesting story about his confession. He had a mentor who was the, uh, we would call him the, the dean, the chancellor of the, uh, the monastery. And he would hear his confessions. And so he would go to confession. And his confessions would go on and on and on. And you might say, well, how long? Because on and on and on. Well, I, per- personally, I don't know how long a normal confession is. But let's just say a normal confession is several minutes or maybe 10 minutes or 15. He would go on for hours in the confession booth. So much so that his mentor is pulling out his hair as well. I mean, this is, if you're fairly busy and you've got this individual who's not only confessing a sin, but then begins to dissect the sin and try to confess individual parts of the sin, and then after confessing it, being afraid that he might be arrogant about the fact that he confessed it, and now he's confessing his arrogance about it, and now he's creating more sinfulness as he goes along, he would be in the in the confession booth with, with this individual for sometimes four to five hours. Can you imagine that? I can't. But that's... But it, but that's who he was. So my point, where I was going with that, is that he was trying to, to get an answer to how in the world he could possibly ever have a relationship with God. And he wasn't finding it in Aristotle, and he wasn't finding it in Aquinas, and he wasn't finding it in uh, Augustine, and he wasn't finding it in Peter Lombard. So he was reading the Bible. Of all things, he's reading the Bible. And it's in the Bible that he begins to see differences in what he's being taught or has been taught. And one of those differences is how we are saved. How do we have a relationship with God? Well, up to that point, it was mostly taught through works, good works. Well, if it's through good works then Luther, of course, just could not do enough good works. He's up early in the morning to sing, to read and sing the Psalms and to pray and to work and do all of the things that a monk is supposed to do well into the night. But he always felt, thought and felt, because it was a terrifying experience for him, that he was nowhere close to God. How could he possibly be close to God? And that was his conundrum. That was his problem. But what he finds in Scripture is something different than what he's being taught. And one of the things that he he was taught is this word mercy. He rarely ever heard the word mercy. And for him, it was just a wrathful God. But God has mercy. And God has love. And those were not being emphasized. It was mostly the terror that we might find in our relationship with God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. 
and raised up together. And this, this, he, his emphasis had always been on being dead, dead in our trespasses. And he couldn't get beyond that. He couldn't get beyond the saving grace of God. And raised us up, verse 6, together and made us sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And he couldn't picture this. He couldn't picture any possible way that he could be worthy of that. Not realizing that it was because of Christ's sacrifice that he was wor- he could become not worthy, but seen as worthy, justified. And <clears throat> verse 7, that in ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. And this was foreign to the teaching of the church. Grace. Grace was simply not part of what was being taught. Except that it was, in order to be saved, grace was given to you. You had to be given the grace. And you had to be given the faith because there was absolutely nothing you could do. For by grace, by means of grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. This was the gift that we had. Therefore, it's it's not something that could be achieved by human effort or human merit, as they like to say. It's a gift of God. Not from works, not out of works, not out of deeds. You can't accumulate them and attain anything. Lest anyone should boast. And uh, the the dramatic changes that came into Christendom, we might say, were were achieved, number one, because of his personality and his struggle. And he found answers in the Word of God and he didn't set the Word of God aside like all of the other theologians, pastors, priests, monks, uh, he, he remained in the Word of God. And at that time, of course, the Word of God was exclusive to a select group of people. Only those who were able to read it, either in Latin or if they had Greek New Testament or Hebrew New Testament, mostly it was Latin. And it wasn't translated. It was not to be translated because the people were held at a distance from the word. And they were only told what it was said. And therefore, if you are distant from the truth, you don't have the truth. You can't really... The only truth you know is what you're told. And that was the problem. But, through the Reformation... We had the reaffirmation, the reaffirming of the foundations of the faith. And the foundation of the faith, first of all, sola scriptura, by scripture alone. This is where we began to return to scripture. Because up to that point, 
again, except for a few people. Uh, John Wycliffe was one of the first ones who wanted to translate the Bible. His constantly said, the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples taught the people in their languages and the text was written in those languages. We should translate the Bible. Uh, Wycliffe, for his efforts, was later burned at the stake. John Huss, the same thing. And others were persecuted for their attempts to translate the Bible and put it into the hands of the everyday people. But by Scripture alone, not by church tradition, and certainly not by texts that were written about Scripture, people's conjecture. Also, sola fide, by faith alone. And this one, these first two are more associated with uh, Luther than others, than our third one, but by Scripture alone and by faith alone, we are saved. We can we only determine the truth by Scripture alone, and we are only redeemed by faith alone, not by works. And then finally, sola gratia by grace alone, which goes hand in hand by faith alone. This comes by grace. And the, the faith and the grace that exists is not a gift of the church or a gift of God. It is something that is that God provides for us so that we can have a relationship with him. We can believe in the saving message. Now, in front of you, you have the 500th anniversary of Reformation Day, and I just thought it was uh, worth our while to maybe have a little bit better understanding of what this 500th anniversary means and uh, celebrating it uh, this year is important because it's going to be another 500 years before we have the opportunity again, so you may want to cash in on this. But one of the things that uh, Martin Luther said, and put this on the front front cover here, is that I am much afraid that schools will prove to be the great gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures, engraving them in the hearts of youth. And that's absolutely true, and that's exactly what's happening today. This is where we find ourselves. Um, when we remove Scripture from our education, we remove absolute truth, and everything else is built upon that. Now, uh, there is uh, much here that's very valuable as this kind of walks us through some of the subjects, the topics, the problems that existed in that time. And I would like for you to read this. Um, but what, I'm, what I think I'm going to do is I would like to read some passages from here because in this we see the 95 Theses and we've discussed those in times past. The 95 Theses, the word Theses is simply propositions and the 95 theses that uh, Luther coined that he uh, created 
were questions. He was a professor, and he designed them to be discussed in what they called disputations. They would come together. Uh, it could be generally done between scholars, but you would do it in the classroom as well, and discuss these. And the 95 Theses were questions. They were homework that was given for people to study. Well, they ended up in about two weeks, these 95 Theses were uh, copied and had, had uh, been disseminated through much of the area, the German area where Luther lived there in Wittenberg because it was the castle church is what they called it. But within two years, it had been uh, disseminated uh, throughout Europe and the Pope, of course, now had a copy of it as well. And it became a very uh, controversial event. What we believe, and further study of this, normally we say that it was on October the 31st that he uh, attached the 95 Theses to the door. But what he, we believe he probably actually did is he wrote a letter to the bishop asking him very humbly and very graciously to consider these 95 Theses that he sent to him. And of course, the bishop was hearing none of it. And then later, uh, he attached it to the door for the disputations. But one of the the uh, uh, critical parts of this, and where the sort of the the uh, the problem came to a head, was in indulgences uh, and the sale of indulgences. And for us, we we probably the word indulgences just eludes us again because we're not we're not familiar with what it was. Uh, we're simply not familiar to the the decadence and the corruption that had occurred in the church at that time. Luther had been sent on a journey by. Uh, Johann von Stoppitz, I think his name is. His name is probably in our theses here. But uh, who was the uh, the vicar of the monastic uh, organization? I think he was over about thirteen monasteries in northern Germany. And Luther was sent to Rome, an eight hundred mile jaunt walk. And he walked the entire way. But when he, got, when he arrived, Luther, who is generally overcome by the importance of the Mass, uh, the taking of what we would call the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the handling of it. He, matter of fact, he just could not actually believe that he was going to handle it, that he was going to do it. And when he conducted his first Mass, he almost failed. He was paralyzed in doing it. But when he got to Rome, he found out that it was not only commercialized, but it was blasphemed by the priests who were doing it. And they were doing it essentially for money. And uh, everything he saw there, was it was debauchery for the most part. Well... So indulgences became 
a major part of this around which the Reformation began to truly take form. And uh, Luther's personality, number one, but number two, the other thing that was about uh, was he had a nobleman, Frederick the Elector, who had a castle very close by. Matter of fact, it was in uh, Wittenberg, Wittenberg. And he had a relationship with him, even though it's they believe they never actually met. I find that hard to believe, but that's what scholars tell us. Uh, but Frederick was willing to protect him from the Pope and from the Holy Roman Emperor. And that's probably one of the only reasons that Luther survived. But I'd like to read to you just a few things here to give you a taste of what, first of all, the significance of Martin Luther, but also the situation that uh, existed at that time. Because for us, it's probably almost difficult to do. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start with the introduction, and this is from Eric McTaxis's book and Martin Luther. Uh, I haven't completed the book, but uh, the first part of it is is a marvelous story. But I like the way he starts this in the introduction. In 1934, an African-American pastor from Georgia made the trip of a lifetime, sailing across the Atlantic Ocean, through the gates of Gibraltar, and across the Mediterranean Sea to the Holy Land. After this pilgrimage, he traveled to Berlin, attending an international conference of Baptist pastors. While in Germany, this man who was named Michael King, became so impressed with what he learned about the reformer Martin Luther that he decided to do something dramatic. He offered the ultimate tribute to the man's memory by changing his own name to Martin Luther King. His five-year-old son was also named Michael, and to the son's dying day, his closest relatives would still call him Mike, but not, but not long after the boy's father changed his own name, he decided to change his son's, name's, son's name too. And Michael King Jr. became known to the world as Martin Luther King Jr. This father and son name change is just one dramatic measure of the influence of Martin Luther. Luther's writings and actions so alter the landscape of the modern world that much of what we now take for granted may be traced directly to him, the quirky genius of Wittenberg. For example, the quintessentially modern idea of the individual and of one's personal responsibility before oneself and God rather than before any institution, which was the church, whether the church or state, was unthinkable before Luther. It was the church, the church, the church, and the individual was lost in all of this. And the more recent ideas of pluralism, religious liberty, and self-government all entered history through the door that Luther opened to the future in which we now live. As I said, Luther was not the beginning of this. John Wycliffe was born around 1328 in England. And in many truly remarkable ways, he prefigured Luther and Luther's eventual reforms. Uh, Luther had the chance to read 
about Wycliffe, and he had to, the opportunity to read about John, uh, Jan Hus. Uh, and it's interesting in the book, it says that as a young monk, as a novice monk, he would read some of these things that they had written, and he could not find a problem with what was written. Yet, he was absolutely devoted and dedicated to the Pope and to the church. But he's reading these. He's not seeing where they're wrong. And the reason he isn't is because he was also totally dedicated to Scripture because they were writing from Scripture and he was reading Scripture. And therefore, it was sola scriptura to him as well. Um... I wanted to read uh, his thoughts and his ideas here on the Eucharist. And this is how the church had dramatically uh, changed the Eucharist from the time when both the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul used it, and it was used in the early church. It was just changed. But the way this... uh, this occurs at the time when he becomes a priest. He joined the the monastery in Erfurt, and then he came from and, and where he was a monk, and he goes through a year of being a novice monk. And I'm going to read something very dramatic to you in a minute, but he then moves on, and he's going to become a priest. And part of the ordination, taking the holy orders, as they would say, part of the holy orders was to perform your first Mass. And and let's listen to this, as because it gives us insight into who Martin Luther was. At last the day came when Luther had passed the period of uh, suppliance and would become a full-fledged monk. At this time, early in 1506, there were 58 monks in the monastery. Eleven of them were lay monks, while the rest were priests. Luther's superiors rightly saw in him someone with special gifts and early on determined that he should be ordained as a priest and soon. For this, however, the vicar general of the order, that was the title I was trying to find, must also approve. The vicar general of the Augustinians at the time was an especially gifted man named Johannes von Staupitz. He had accepted that post three years earlier, <clears throat> and the year before that, in 1502, had become the Dean of Theology Department at the brand new university at Wittenberg. This Staupitz would become extremely important in Luther's life in the years following, although he would never leave the church as Luther did. His relationship with Luther would, would have much to do with Luther's own path. Um, on April the 3rd uh, Brother Martinus which was his original name was to be ordained as a priest this was precisely one year to the date after that uh, after was fixed uh, after the day that was fixed for his ordination Um, Luther's general sense of his own unworthiness before God was not necessarily theologically out of line, but it was nonetheless lead to a significant problem at the event to which he was invite he was inviting his parents and everyone else. This is because on that day Luther would do something 
that he had never done before. He would bring himself face to face with God. Every priest knew every priest knew that to handle the host bread and pour the wine was not something to take lightly, as though one were merely handling bread and pouring the fermented juice of grapes. In the transformation that the priest himself would oversee, the bread would, in his sinful but sanctified hands, miraculously become the very body of God incarnate, the body of the king who had been cruelly broken for mankind. And at the sound of his human words, the wine would be transformed into the very blood of the one who has sacrificed who in his sacrifice of extreme agony had bled for us and died. Luther would take this responsibility as seriously as any priest had ever ever had. So here what we're reading is the the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. The actual changing of the material, of the elements. Luther knew well that in the ceremony he would, for the first time in his life, be talking directly to the Almighty. Well, see, again, this is just errant teaching. It's it's wrong. This is not the first time because everyone has that opportunity as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's traumatized by this. To see the vast distance between himself and the God on high whom he dared approach was to reel with dizziness. Who was he to do such a thing? He was more sensitive than most priests to the number and depth of his sins, as I've described to you before, and he he never and he was never sure he had genuinely confessed all of them, although he certainly tried. <laughs> but Luther knew that if he had any unconfessed sins in him, as he performed the holy rite of Mass, he might well be struck dead in that moment. Because many monks would not have understood this as Luther did. Those in authority over them would have made the awesomeness of it all too clear, the terrible, all too terribly clear. But Luther was the last person to need this clarification and, unders- uh, and underscored. And as the day approached, the prospect that he faced tore him apart. How dare he, the sinful Martin Luther, approach an infinitely holy and all-powerful God. And he goes through this. And here's the part that I want to read to you. When it came time to lift the host, he froze. He was frozen, unable to do that very thing for which he had prepared nearly two years and for which everyone in the room had traveled so many miles. There was another priest with Luther during this ceremony as there always would have been when a priest was performing his first Mass. Luther was in this moment so paralyzed with what he had to do that he whispered to this priest that he wanted to run from the altar. But the elder priest had stood at this precipice once himself. And he now ordered the young monk to continue. And Luther obeyed. You know, so here he is. He's now. This is important. I mean, the first time you do the Lord's Supper, it's important, and it can be uh, a very uh, awe-inspiring thing. But to to then move that to say that you're actually handling the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, 
you can see, and for Luther, of course, it was more so than just traumatizing. It was almost death-defying. Well, uh, let me... There are many different descriptions of uh, how monks viewed Scripture at the time, but let me read something to you that I think puts this in perspective for us. How can the church drift so far from the truth? How can the church be so involved in, particularly down in uh, the papacy, down in Rome, to be involved in the debauchery of what was ongoing there and the degeneracy of it? And it's because if you're not studying the Bible, you're you're open to all kinds of uh, false teaching and not only false teachings but the uh, the lust of your of your sin nature will take you uh, to very extreme degrees in speaking of the Bible in a world in which we nearly always associate the Bible with churches and churches with the Bible it's difficult to imagine a time when the two had almost no connection. That this changed so dramatically is yet another measure of Luther's immense impact on history. But what Luther himself said many times was that the study of the Bible, per se, was simply unheard of in his early years as a monk. Of course, there were no Bibles in pews because they, they didn't exist. There were no Bibles in pews, and the average layman had almost no idea, whatever, of what it contained, nor even that it was a book. They heard bits and pieces of it read aloud in Latin during the Masses they attended, but the idea that there was a book containing all of these things was foreign to them, even in the decades after Glutenberg published his celebrated first Bibles. This did not mean that monks were unacquainted with much of what the Bible had taught and said, but even for them, biblical material was filtered by and parsed via the institution of the church. So no, so one caught snippets here and there, but to think of them collected in the Bible itself was still rather a rare idea. For example, monks and theological students read the commentaries of Duns Scotus and the sentences of Peter Lombard, both of which were mainly about what the Bible, what's in the Bible. But in a way, these things obscured the Bible itself as a whole text. It was a plain fact that no one was really entrusted with reading the Bible by itself, so that monks and even priests and theologians were typically kept at one or more removed from it. But the new... Uh, so it was not particularly a wonder, given the atmosphere that had been manufactured, maintained for centuries, and given the high cost of books of such length, that there were very few Bibles to be had. Still as it happened, by the time Luther entered the uh, monastic life, the one book that novices were allowed to read was in fact the Bible. They could read it, but as soon as they uh, moved beyond their novicity, the Bible was taken from them. Luther here um, we know that immediately upon entering the monastery Luther was lent one a Bible 
It seems that Luther did not receive the book lightly, for he, did, for he not only read it, but almost devoured it. He read it over and over until he, he was inordinately and perhaps even peculiarly familiar with it. This would, of course, have everything to do with the events of his future and future himself. Then we go down here a little ways. In contrast with his phonetic and passionate Bible reading, Luther said, that the other monks did not read their Bibles at all, or much at all. It is extremely likely that Luther's obsession and his mastery of the book attracted his attention to uh, von uh, Stoppitz because he had the same intense desire. Strangely, en- strangely enough, once a novice actually became a monk, he was no longer allowed to keep his Bible. The Bible was taken from him. And Luther, in order to read the Bible, had to go to the library. And he would go to the library and he would pull the Bible off the shelf and that's where he would read the Bible. So you, you see here that, that that's not only the direction that the church was going, that's where they existed. And so the Reformation for Luther was when he talks about sola scriptura, he's standing in front of uh, individuals who are evaluating him and he's saying that the Pope and church tradition and church councils don't have authority over the Bible. Well, that was heresy. Absolute heresy. But thankfully, he stood his ground. Not only did he stand his ground, but he he started making translations of the Bible into German. And one of the things that we don't realize is how important that German Bible was because at the time, that was not only... It not only became a Bible to them, the Word of God, but it actually became, became... It established the German grammar. What he was teaching in the Bible was now being used to establish the German grammar because the language up to that point was rather fluid. But the other other thing that I wanted to say here, and I'm running out of time, was I wanted to read for you this uh, problem that arose over indulgences. And I thought this explanation, uh, where is my explanation on indulgences, was about as clear as I have read. And I thought I marked it. Uh, What I did mark is something else. Hmm. Well, this, as I said, it was about as clear a description and you can't help me here, but... uh, I'll give you another second, see if I can find this. Uh, The description of the indulgences here was just a classic explanation 
Well, the indulgences was a way for someone to pay for their sins. Well, do we have a pretty good explanation here? Okay. Well, the indulgences here. God, this is... Yeah. In 1517, Pope Leo X, with empty pockets and needing funds to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica, instituted a special sale of indulgences issued by the Pope. Indulgences were certificates of a special sort of forgiveness for sins uh, rendered in exchange for various acts of merit. In this case, donations to Leo's treasury. Indulgences could even be purchased on behalf of the dead, loved ones in purgatory. The remarkable thing about this is that in order to purchase indulgences, there has to be something to purchase. And the idea was that there had been certain individuals, and we'll just start with the greatest one, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then there would be others like Peter and Paul, who had lived a life that had been so sanctified and so meritorious that they not only were meritorious in their own uh, behalf and own regard, but they had exceedingly abundance of merits. And those merits went into a treasury, the treasury of heaven. And that God had given the Pope authority uh, to supervise that treasury. And so the Pope then could sell you as a uh, dismal, depraved individual uh, some of these merits, and they called them indulgences, and you could then purchase it. And of course, the higher the price, the more the indulgence, uh, the more the merits that you could receive. And the idea here, of course, works hand in hand with purgatory, is that what you're trying to do is purchase indulgences so that you don't need to spend as much time in this non-biblical location called purgatory. And otherwise, you might spend thousands and thousands of years in purgatory. But depending upon how much you pay, you can whittle those thousands of years down to maybe only a couple thousand. Or, and the fact, millions of years. It was just extraordinary. And of course, if you know this, and if this you're a believer in this, you're willing to spend all kinds of money. And the more money you get, they would, and they even had a scale for how much money, how much merit, and how that would affect your your life. Uh, it, it's a, it was a, you know quite a uh, a racket. There you go. Thank you. It's quite a racket, and it worked because these people were always in need of money, and they would go around. And you'll notice here in our our text one of the jingles this and one of the uh, uh, Johann Tetzel, who was the peddler, he would come into an area and he was like uh, P.T. Barnum. It was just an absolute uh, circus. He would say, open up his uh, chest and he'd have this stack of indulgences. And he said, I have here the passports to lead the human soul to the celestial joys of paradise. As soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. So you could you could therefore purchase your 
family, if you have father, mother, sister, brother, whatever it is, or friends, whoever, relatives, whatever it is, you could help purchase them out of purgatory. There was another way to do this, and this is the last thing we'll take a look at here, and that is by going to some place that had relics. Now, I don't know if you know what relics are, but relics are some item that was considered to be uh, have spiritual value. And you say, well, what might some of those be? Well, if you could go to someone who had a relic, you could pay to see the relic. And in viewing the relic, you would receive some spiritual dispensation. And here is Frederick Wise. By the way, uh, there were... I mean, you cannot even imagine the things that they found. Uh, I I don't know if it's going to be listed here or not, but we're going to come to the point where uh, they found the thumb. Not of Mary, but of Mary's mother, St. Anne. And this is a relic in one of the locations. Now you say, who's St. Anne? Well, not found in Scripture. Not found in Scripture. Let me read some of these. Here we are. Uh, When one discusses relics, we have already said about those that one could find in Rome. I mean, one must assume that that some of them are indeed... Well, most of them are not what they purport to be. Most of them are. Few, probably none of them are. For example, in the dazzling vast collection that was amassed there in Wittenberg, there was a twig from the burning bush itself. Good argument for it because it didn't burn, right? So there should be twigs left of it. Perhaps even less plausible, the centerpiece of the collection was said to be a thorn from the crown of the thorns worn by Jesus. Now, if you have a thorn from the crown worn by Jesus, is it just any thorn? Or might it be a thorn that actually pierced the brow? Aha! Now there, that is worth having. And it was officially certified. Who certified it? to have pierced the Savior's brow. Uh, of course, among these treasures was the thumb that had belonged to the very woman to whom Luther had made his vow during the uh, Stotterheim storm, St. Anne, whom the Savior likely called Grandma. Thanks to uh, this Frederick's ambitions, Wittenberg, the relics rivaled even those featured in Rome. A tooth of St. Jerome was in the collection. Fragments of the bodies of other saints uh, from St. Augustine and others. We also have uh, a patch of the swaddling clothes, a piece of the very gold brought to the Lord by the Magi, and three precious uh, fragments of funeral myrrh that they had prophetically given. They had pieces, fragments, 13 lucky fragments from Jesus' childhood crib, possibly made by Joseph himself. Strands of hair from the beard of Jesus and four hairs from the head of his dear mother. 
Mary was also represented by three holy fragments from her cloak and four from her girdle. There were also seven fragments taken from the veil that had been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. There was a piece of the very bread served at the Last Supper and vials containing the blood... Excuse me. This is tough here. Uh, vials containing drops of milk from the actual breasts of the Virgin Mary. A piece of John Baptist's cloak, a portion of the very rock upon which the Savior stood as he wept over Jerusalem. And bones from the infants killed by Herod and Bethlehem. So this is, this is where you end up with religi- religiosity. You have this... Uh, uh, what would we say, just complete destruction of what is sacred and true by trying to find various ways to make money, to be famous, to get prestige, and to gain power. And all of that was part of what was happening at that time. And Luther, what, he just didn't like it? No, as he read the Bible, as he read the Bible, he realized that this was all malarkey. And it was leading people astray. And that's why he started to write the Bible, translate the Bible, so that individuals could read it for themselves. He studied it. He taught it. And he also then was working to change the church. And what's very often understood about Luther is that Luther was not trying to leave the church. He wasn't... um, trying to begin a different denomination. As a matter of fact, he never left the church. They threw him out. He was excommunicated. And Lutheranism then grew up from what he was teaching. And then later on, uh, John Calvin with uh, Presbyterianism. And so denominations then will extend from that. But much of what began... Uh, in the Reformation then spills over in the United States and we have dramatic changes in the United States as a matter of fact many of the people who are being persecuted because they uh, broke with Catholicism came to the United States and the United States ends up being I think a, a great beneficiary of the Protestant Reformation at that time so I just wanted to touch on some of these things I I'm a, Thank Hal for his work on the uh, uh, the bulletin. Uh, some of these things are important for us to understand. Why uh, did certain things happen and why are certain things important? And while Martin Luther wasn't perfect, as a matter of fact, there's a lot of things about what Martin Luther did um, that are a problem. But, but he, uh, as well as some of the other reformers. But what happened here is that there was a return to Scripture and at least in returning to Scripture, we have a chance at the truth instead of it being concealed from us. And then, of course, sola fide, by faith alone, and also by grace alone, are important uh, changes that came out of the early part of the Reformation. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for what you have provided for us in the text of Scripture and help us to stay with Scripture. Sola Scriptura is certainly a byword for us. We need to stay in the word because it's from your word that we receive the truth. And we ask, Father, for your continued blessings uh, on us that we might uh, truly have that 
perspective. And we pray, Father, that God the Holy Spirit would continue to reveal the truth to us. Father, we're also thankful that we have the assurance of salvation through simply believing. Sola fide, by faith alone. The sacrifice of our Savior on the cross provides for us an opportunity for us to simply believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's as simple as that. It's not works-oriented, and it has nothing to do with impressing you because you're unimpressible, with the exception of your own righteousness and the righteousness of your Son. And we're thankful through our faith in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross that we might receive the imputed righteousness of Christ so that we might have a relationship with you, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.